Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. And uh, as the temperatures soar into the triple digits here in Tucson, Jake. Arizona, it is always invigorating to connect with cats who uh, get me going in a, in a different way, get my brain boiling through rhythm and vibration, and uh, especially as it relates to my peer group, I had a chance to see my next guest at Tree Ford Festival with really a, a band uh, that I feel is providing extensions and expansions of musical vocabulary in the 21st century, which is not easy to do. Um, very prolific cat, multi-instrumentalist, Andrew Randazzo, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Jake, thanks for having me, my man. It's an honor to have you, brother. You know, I wanted to talk to you about this concept that, um, you know, it's, it's always very intriguing to me as a non-musician, but uh, I wanted you to talk about an early experience in your career in a band when uh, collectively the group would lose the one or the downbeat and then, you know, leave the head of the tune, go out, and then collectively come back in on the one. Uh, to me, cats like James Jamerson would get really upset because people would say, well, where's the one? Where's the one? And he'd say, any note can be the one. And I, I, I really prescribe to that theory that any note can be the one. And I wanted you to talk about a musical experience when you lost it as a group, collectively found it, and, uh, and how cathartic it was. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely a thing that just happens, you know, when you're starting out and uh, and, and uh, you know, even <laughs> even not starting out, it can it can still happen. And I think it really just comes down to listening. You know, it's really just about listening and developing your your ability to communicate with other musicians as well. You know, I'm always I'm a big proponent of, you know, we got two ears and one mouth for a reason. That's so we can listen twice <laughs> as much as we talk. And uh, yeah. I think I think that's kind of like what you have to do in those situations. If you can start to feel that things are getting a little bit um, uncertain, if you will, yep. I guess, yep. or like maybe we're getting into a place where we're not all in exactly the same place. You got to listen, and you got to listen, and you got to talk. It's like because you know that your other band members are listening to you, especially as a bass player. You have the power to show. Where, where are we at? And if, if you can be strong with that, but also be sensitive to where someone else might be at, you got a really good chance of everyone ending in the same place. And I also love to just think as long as we start at the same time and end at the same time, we did a good job. Well, what, how did you learn to, can you talk about an early experience where you got comfortable with that pulse? Because I just know cats who played with, um, Billy Kreutzman, who was the timekeeper for the Grateful Dead. I know they had two drummers, but uh, Mickey Hart was definitely more of an ethnic percussionist. Uh, people would turn around, not affiliated with the Dead, if they were just playing with Billy like on a gig and say, Yo, where's the one? And he would say, well, any note can be the one, but also it'll come back around. Yeah. And, and so, I, I mean, that that is, yeah, that you're right. It, it's about listening, I agree, but I mean... You have to actually, you know, experience sort of getting lost, falling off the tracks, getting back on the tracks. I have no problem with that. I think that that's where, uh, I mean, people would consider that sloppy or mistakes, but 
I just want to know early on, like an experience where you consistently got into one of those things where things were kind of getting sideways, but still, uh, you know, you really were able to, as a group, um, hone your collective trust and be able to sort of feel that pulse and rhythm. I think that the specific group that I'm thinking of right now, where this would sort of happen sometimes, and we all, we all acknowledged it, is uh, my buddy Zach Cross, who's a piano player, and my buddy Luke Engel, who's a drummer. Wow. And we had a little trio, wow. um, kind of back around 2008-2009. And, uh, you know, we were all in, in our college years and young, uh, young go-getters, if you will, and I th- we would just get up and jam and we'd play some gigs sometimes, but we were all really interested in like stretching our boundaries and sort of maybe stepping outside of our comfort level a little bit. Um, and that would just happen. And I think, you know, Luke, Luke, the drummer said to me one time, he was like, you know, why I love this band because this is the only band where I get lost. <laughs> so I think that was, I think that was the group where I started to kind of feel like, okay, it can be okay to be a little uncertain for a little while. Because um, we'll find our way, you know, we'll get back. Um, would you consider, like, you know, you look at guys like, I mean, Jocko, obviously, uh, <clears throat> Phil Lesh, uh, to a degree, um, you know, uh, Miroslav Vichuis from Weather Report. I mean, a lot of those guys were, in some ways, they were they were playing the root, but they were also uh playing lead bass in some in some respects and that can get a little bit disconcerting and you know I, I mean clearly in like a band like Butcher Brown um, you guys have played in so many different kinds of musical styles and you guys have a lot of trust but I just wonder like you know how do you incorporate or how much are you able to um, sort of keep the root lock the groove but also create individual expression or do you feel like your job, not even a Butcher Brown, but now is to just keep it in the pocket? Um, well, you know, I think that's a really important tenet of, of musical prowess, in my opinion, is tension and release. Absolutely. And uh, when the bass player is uh, keeping it in the pocket and just sort of sticking to bass rolls, well, there, it, it's not much tension, you know? What I mean, and, and it's not that a bass player needs to create tension, but it can be a really great little musical tool to step outside that zone uh, as long as it's put in the right context. I think that's important the context. Uh, and as long as it's surrounded by some bass playing in, in one way or another, uh, that can just be a great way to set up a little tension and then release from the bass chair. Uh, I, does that kind of answer your question? Well, there's no right or wrong answers. I mean, I just to me, like, um, I part of me feels like in order to create some of that tension and release, uh, you know, the entire band has to, each individual has to be responsible for their own inner time feel because yes. at that point, you and you know Corey or whoever the drummer is uh, can then sort of play more melodically. And create a buildup potentially. Yeah, you know what I'm trying to oh, say. Absolutely. And yeah. like, so I mean, the subtle. I know this is kind of in the weeds, but to me, you know, I just wanted you to talk about the uh, the the contours or the or the, you know, sort of the um, the the nuances of 
putting it in context, but still allowing the rhythm section to play melodically and actually have a voice within the conversation. That, I mean, you, you know, like you said, you're not going to play like a flurry of notes and go off and play free, but it, there's really some subtle pro things that you can do in order to create that tension and then that leads to release. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, um, well, first of all, I want to say that I'm, uh, I'm lucky to get to play with musicians like DJ Corey, Marcus Morgan, Keith Askin. They're lucky to play with you, dog, you know? Hey hey, man. man. (laughs) You're lucky man, dude. What what I knew from, what I knew from when I first started playing with that band, what I realized is just, man, everybody, everybody can hold the time themselves. Mm -hmm. Everyone has a really good sense of time. There's no real weak links I, unless I'm the weak link and I just don't notice it, but no, I think you know, you're, you're doing just fine, dude. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like it always felt like uh, everyone's got really good time in this band, and that so it kind of makes it nice. It makes it nice, feel like a nice Cadillac or something, <laughs> you know, some sort of a long body with some loose suspension. It's really easy. No, nah, this is what I'm band. talking about now, dude. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Suspension. You know, when, yeah. when everyone's got good time. It just sort of it it frees me up, or it might free Corey up, or or whoever the drummer may be, to uh, to to sort of like be a little more expressive with my time or with their time. And um, I mean, if you come to a Butcher Brown show today, what you're hearing is fifteen years of of trust built up between me and Corey and and DJ and Marcus. And, you know, and I mean, there's just so much. There's so many different gigs that we've played and musical experiences that we've had that we we just really know how to trust each other. It's like a musical trust fall or something. <laughs> no, it's I like did. I spotter. did. And I just know I so, know what I can get away with. And and so basically though, like there are times after years on the bandstand together where you're like, uh, I'm gonna take this I'm gonna make a left turn here and like a flock of birds, everybody goes with you, right? Yeah, 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 for sure. For sure, that's a great analogy. I mean, to me, like, that is what music is about. Um, I, I, you know, just wonder about, um, like, if you learned music by ear before you learned to read music. And the only reason I bring that up, I was talking to Corey about this a little bit, but just, uh, I've done quite a few interviews with, with our, my elders, your elders, and... Um, <clears throat> You know, someone like Gary Bartz or Eddie Henderson, uh, they would teach at Oberlin and they were like, you know, um, cat's ears are locked today because they're learning to read music before they learn to hear it. And uh, most of the older cats either came up as autodidacts or someone like Bird would listen to every radio station or every, you know, try to learn every tune and every key, but they weren't locked into the page, so to speak. And I wonder about uh, how you, your aptitude with music, and if you learn to hear it before you learn to read it. That's uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know that I really know the answer to that question um, because I, I did learn to read music at a young age because I sort of like took piano lessons when I was a little kid, and uh, but I was also like singing in choirs and church and school, so I was hearing it without reading it, and I was also sort of just picking out melodies on my own, so I was learning music by ear and I was also just always listening like my favorite thing as a kid was my Walkman and my tapes 
you know, I was always, I just always had that with me. So it was like sort of a, a nice, healthy balance of speaking and listening and reading and just sort of doing all, all the different things at once. I think when I picked up the bass guitar, I, it was a while before I got into reading music on the bass. I was sort of picking out tunes by ear and just sort of figuring it out on my own. It was, it, it was a few years before I started getting into reading music on the bass guitar. But, you know, just like learning to speak the English language, I was sort of doing it all at once mm-hmm. when I was really young. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. I mean, I remember when I interviewed Klaus Vorman, uh, the great drum uh, bassist, uh, played with Jim Keltner a lot, lot with uh, George Harrison. It, when he would, I mean, g- growing up in Germany, the teacher... <clears throat> The teacher was was so furious with him because um, his piano lessons, he would just constantly be just looking at his fingers, and she wanted him to look at the at the page, and so she actually threw a dog collar on him, and kept yanking his his head up, and uh, and so like at the end of the day, did you ever get to a point musically where you were like, I'm done taking. I know you were in choir, you took some piano lessons, but were you ever in a symphonic bag? Did you ever get to a point when you were like, I'm done taking cues from a conductor. I need to play what I feel. No, because I think it went the other way for me personally. I think I was playing what I was feeling first. And then I was like, oh, like, look, the high school has an orchestra (laughs) and they've got upright basses in there. Maybe I can, maybe I can go do that. Maybe I can try my hand at that. So I was sort of drawn to that like that other thing, that symphonic world and playing, playing in sort of like big bands and string orchestra and symphony orchestra as a college, that all came after I was like, Oh, I really love this sublime bass line or like this Led Zeppelin tune is super cool. I'm going to learn that. Or I'm going to jam with my friends after school and we're going to start a band. All of that stuff came first. And then I was like, Oh, what is this like orchestra? I, I want to try that. Cause I really like music. And that's, that's some different kind of music that I haven't tried yet. Well, I mean, can you talk about that? I mean, that I, first of all, you, you were playing the bass fiddle in these bands? Yeah, well, I mean, I picked up the bass guitar when I was like 13 or 14 years old, I think. And then I was like, oh, what's up with that big bass? What's going on with that? I kind of want to do that, too. And I picked one up one time because there, there was some in my school. I was really fortunate to have a school that had an arts program in it. It wasn't an arts school or anything special like that. It was a regular public high school, but we had band and orchestra, and they had basses, you know? Uh, Everyone, I mean, the point is they had instruments for the cats, right? They had instruments, yeah, and looking back on it, I was really blessed to have that. Absolutely. So shout out to Yorktown High School. Absolutely, uh, dude. And Thomas Hartman, my orchestra director, because, you know, frankly, between me and you, I guess, it's not between me and you. And everybody else, yeah, no doubt. Between me and you and everyone listening. (laughs) I was like, man, I really want to play that big bass, but like, I don't have one. And I'm, am I really going to like ask my mom to buy me a bass? No. Maybe if I just say that I'm playing the school orchestra, they'll let me use a bass. And sure enough, they let me take one home so I could practice, quote unquote. And I started taking that to my little jazz gigs that I had in high school. And, and it really got me going. Dude, Andrew Randazzo's blowing my... Dude, how sly are you, man? You're playing jazz gigs in high school? I was playing jazz gigs in high school. I I didn't think anything of it. You know, I had a good friend, Jacob Sherman, who was my exact same age, and he was a guitar player. And he was hustling gigs 
in high school in DC, which, you know, it, once I got to college and met other peers, I was like, Oh, I see. Like you guys aren't, you guys weren't like playing standards games for tips at brunch in DuPont circle. <laughs> like that was right. Right. I did. <laughs> right. Right. I just kind of took it for granted. I was like, this is just what you do. Also got to say, you know, coming up, I had the Blues Alley Youth Orchestra, which was an amazing organization for high school students, uh, ran by the Blues Alley organization in D.C. Um, so I was just surrounded with peers that were like-minded. So beautiful that you bring that. that I mean, no, I, I just, I'm going to throw this name out there because I'm, I'm working on a memoir with him right now, and he is through and through Washington, D.C., the drummer for the Blackbirds, Keith Kilgo. Have you ever crossed paths with him? I don't think I know Keith, no. Keith, so, you know, Donald Byrd had that band at Howard uh, with Kevin Tony. They're Blackbirds, obviously. And uh, <clears throat> Keith, I mean, Keith would, I mean, his dad would drop him at the clubs. This is going back way before we were born. But, um, you know, give him a hamburger and a Coke, and he'd be hanging out with Miles. And, and then Blues Alley came along later. Um, I, I just wonder, like, you in terms of, like, the standards that you, were you – when you started those jazz gigs, were you uh, basically learning? Did you have a big bag of standards, or were you just basically playing by ear? Had a bag of standards for sure. I had a I had a real book, and I was I was glued to that thing, man. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, it was a big deal. It, it was like a, it was like my comfort blanket for a long time. It was like my pacifier or something. No, there's nothing wrong uh, with that. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's how I got started, for sure. And it introduced me to a bunch of standards to learn. And So, yeah, we were just kind of playing tunes out of robots. That was, that was our vibe, and then eventually I just lost it. <laughs> and I just knew all the tunes that I needed to know. <clears throat> Have you, were, would you say that you were somebody that, um, one of the areas that is just so phenomenal in, in, in jazz history really is like, um, kind of gets overlooked, and some people call it the birth of the cool, but... The early 60s, um, you know, you go back and listen to Bill Evans' trio with Paul Motion and Scotty LaFaro. Scotty LaFaro uh-huh. was, I mean, I could listen to that Live at the Village Vanguard cassette. By the way, I'm still rocking cassettes on my Wollen sack every day. Go so, ahead, man. All right. I mean, I, I'm, we're, we're Walkman cats. I was born in 78. Um, <clears throat> and uh, he was... He was playing, he was adding a third voice to the bass. I mean, would you say, like, that was, were you getting off on him? Were you getting off on guys like Gary Peacock, who literally were, like, you know, part of this conversation? The thing that's, you know, Andrew, the thing that blows my mind about that, specifically that Vanguard tape, is just, I could listen to it side A, side B, over and over again, and it sounds different every time. I can't. So I mean, like, how? What? You know, to me, like, how did? How did you? Did you feel like you were able to? Was Was Lafaro an influence at that time, or are are names and cats in the history of the lineage not that? Lafaro. Yeah. Scott Lafaro, Gary Peacock, uh, like Eddie Gomez. Yeah. Those kinds of dudes came onto my radar a little bit later. Um, When did they talk about when they came on your radar? I really want to know about. Well, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, it's cool. I mean, when I was starting out, the, I was always sort of like, oh, I should be listening to some jazz music. I'm signed by this record or that CD or, or whatever. And But but I never really kind of, it never really grabbed me until I got to Charles Mingus. 
so it was really it was Mingus early on that I was like, okay, this is some stuff I can get down to. I can really feel hmm. what this guy's putting down. And Ray Brown was the other one. Oh just yeah, uh, come on. Because I come loved on. Oscar Peterson trio so much. It wasn't until later that I was like, oh, that his name is Ray Brown on the bass. Because I was just <laughs> like, man, these CDs are killer. This guy Oscar Peterson knows what he's doing. <laughs> Those were the guys, and 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 um and and Paul Chambers because uh, sure. you know Miles Davis kind of blue was sort of just one of my first records where I had I had people telling me like oh, you should like transcribe some of these solos and like check it out here's this tune so what you should learn how to play this because if you want to be a bass player you got to know how to play so what so yeah those those were my guys early on and then Ron Carter probably came after that because I mean geez you can't get two steps into the jazz world without appreciating Ron Carter on bass I just cannot but, I cannot believe what an assassin that dude is man he is I mean he's a dear friend and just Still. literally, just I mean, even his elect he hated the electric bass and he killed it on those CTI records with all that electric. <laughs> Unbelievable, dude. But <clears throat> ultimately, <clears throat> you know, um, so I want to read you this from uh, a guy you probably uh, at least you know him from all the records he's been on, like like Ron Carter, a little different bag, but Lee Sklar, Leland Sklar, he said, um. He said, in terms of a live concert, I get so angry with front of house guys who think the kick drum is the most important instrument on the stage and you hear nothing but kick drum. When I listened back to Beatles records, everything was on the top of the kit and the bass was the bottom. You'd hear a little kick drum, but it was supportive. It wasn't the dominant instrument. You listen to drummers like Ringo and Charlie Watts, that drum kit is such a conduit between the bottom end and the melody. They create such an energy and vibe. In so many sessions over the years, the producer will say, your bass part's not matching the kick drum pattern. I'm going, let me play the bass and let him figure out a pattern that fits the bass part. The bass should be the dominant factor in that register. Can you talk about, I mean, I, I, Billy Cobham, I just interviewed him for the eighth time. He, nice. said, he said, nobody's listening to the bass player anymore. The bass player is the most, I, I th and I think nobody really understands it, but the focus for all the music that I love from that certain period of time, even Ray Brown, people were feeding off the bass player. And I just wanted you to riff on that. The idea that, uh, the idea of the incessant need, maybe not with Butcher Brown, but you know, the idea of, uh, you know, having to match up with the drummer as opposed to the drummer finding the groove with the bass player. Man, that's, I mean, that's a tough thing. Cause it really gets into like perspectives. It gets into like what point of view, uh, or like, you know, kind of from what direction you're looking at the music, because I don't know, I feel like for me, I, I, I feel like I beat myself up personally a lot for not listening to the other cats enough. Like that's always what I'm trying to go for is like, I'm not listening enough. I need to listen more. Um, and I do listen, but I think that's just kind of like the standard that I hold myself to mm. sort of like some body dysmorphia. Like even if I am listening as hard as possible, I still, I still feel like I'm not doing it enough. Um, hmm. But are you getting yeah. feed? Are you, you, but I mean, that's just being self, you're, the cats aren't, be, aren't telling you that after the gigs. I mean, you're no, just, yeah. no, no, I'm just being critical of myself. Yeah, typical because, of uh, typical of artists. Definitely. Yep. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I think it's just sort of um, one of those things where I, I don't know that I have ever felt like Lee feels for that quote. I don't know that I've ever felt like, I'm not getting enough love as a bass player, whether that's from a front of house perspective 
or from other band members listening to what I'm doing perspective. Um, because I always just, you know, I consider myself an accompanist first and foremost. Um, it, it's, I, I try to leave my ego at the door a little bit. And I think that maybe keeps me from, from considering that important aspect. Um, definitely don't want to belittle Lee's opinion because it's a good point and it's, and it, and it is worth thinking about, but I just don't know that I ever really, uh, I mean, you're right in the sense that like, I mean, you know, he's playing with Phil Collins, he's playing huge stadiums, you know, where there's sort of like, uh, you know, just everything sort of, there's just so much sonic expansion. Um, I, you know, this is really important though. I don't. Are you hip to the band circles around the sun? I don't think I am hip to that. Okay, I the bass play. When I saw I you that no no, I, but let me tell you something. This, this band, uh, well, you're gonna dig them a lot. But the bass player Dan Horn, I was like, there's really nobody else. I mean, he's he's a an incredible player. But when I saw you, not just the overalls, but just sort of the 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 sort of um, you know the way you carried yourself and the kind of way you played. I said, boy, these cats, you know, they need to connect and and uh, and and meet each other because. Well, I'm gonna check it out. Yeah, no, but I so they they're really a hardcore road dog band in the modern world. They are all season players, and they have regional followings all over the country. But it is like I saw him, I saw them on the East Coast back in January, and I. After the gig, I was just, I was like, how's your health? You know, how are you doing? Because, you know, they're on the road maybe two and a half, three weeks at a time. Uh, and they're in a sprinter van. And, you know, they're kind of, they're, you know, the, the gigs don't pay a lot. But they're getting making mostly on merch. But you kind of have to be out on the road for a month to make, to break, to get ahead selling merch. And, I, you know, when I saw Butcher Brown, I just... I wanted you to talk about your road dog experience with that band because there's very few bands out there right now that are playing uh, highly creative original music as road dogger and and it's it's like and it's kind of the only way you're going to do it today because there really is no uh, record or music industry. So I really yeah. wanted you to talk about. Um, I just know for, what, what Horn told me after the gig. He goes, he goes, this is not sustainable, which was very humbling for me because it's such, it, you know, it's, it, things have changed out of COVID. Basically the bars are still broke. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, I'd love you to just take me through why you are, why you guys love being road dog musicians and what is your experience like, especially coming out of COVID? Uh, well, yeah, it, I think it depends on your definition of road dog. When I think of road dog, I think Mendesky, Martin, and Wood, or I think of people that are that are uh, spending more than half the time on the road, and and that's not us. Uh, we, you know, we we go on tours, we go on trips, we play a lot, um, but we, you know, we all we all we've all got a healthy balance of different projects in our world which is cool because when there's no bush or brown stuff happening we can fill up our time with other musical things we come back together a little bit more informed and uh you know that that's that's i think what's always made us a little bit special but i will say um you know we've done some trips we've done some big trips and uh you know you just get into that rhythm man i mean you get into that rhythm of being out on the road you lose track of what day it is, and uh, <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. That's what I want. I don't, you know, it's okay that you're not a 
you know, a, a, a so, you know, you're a dedicated road dog 24 seven all the time, but talk, because I know like with those guys, first couple gigs are great. Then all of a sudden the incline kicks in, you got to really find some gumption by the end. You're kind of, yeah, you don't really know what day it is, but I mean, to me, that's really meditation right there. Yeah. Well, you definitely, it's, it's, you can get into a routine really well, which I thrive on a routine. Um, and I mean, geez, the music never sounds better than, you know, a few gigs into a tour. And then it just, it just keeps improving from there. Uh, so you, you can't really deny that, you know, to get together and to say, oh, we got a gig this weekend, we'll fly into wherever and we're going to do it. Even if you rehearse, you're not going to get to the same spot as when you're out there playing the same songs every night. And with us, you know, we're, musically speaking, we're real comfortable with improvisation and evolution. Oh, taking come risks. on, give it to me, man. This is it. I mean, we, I think the longest trip we did was about a month in Europe. And that was October, 2021. And I, I really remember we were just getting to our bags. You know what I mean? It just really, it became really, really tight just about a weekend. And we were just like, it was wild, man. And it's never a autopilot with that band, which is cool because even if we play the same songs, every show, they're going to just be a little different. It's pretty honest. Thank God. Way. I mean, that's pretty, what I'm talking. I love that. That I've never play the same song the same way once, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, because everyone appreciates and everyone's, everyone's quick on their feet and, you know, we're, we're privileged to be surrounded by each other in that matter. Uh, and it's just always, it's always kind of been like that with that band because I think we're coming out of the jazz tradition too, where improvisation is just the way. It's not, it's not really even. We don't even think about it. We just take it for granted that things are going to be a little different every night. Um, so that keeps it interesting. But you know, we we get on the same page with a lot of stuff, and uh, and things just evolve really organically when we're on the road like that. So. You, you and, would, you, know. you, you, uh, you guys have enough, like to sing for your supper. You're, I mean, you're doing different things, obviously more than just the road dog experience. If you guys were, I mean, you brought up Medeski, Martin and Wood, but I mean, like now it's the haves and the have nots in terms of like, you know, a journey or Steve Miller, you know, they can go out, you know, for the summer tour and make millions of dollars and have, you know, uh, you know, the, the best of everything. If, 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 if Butcher got to a point where you were gaining, you know, especially in this country, like national interest, would you guys commit to, um, a larger domestic touring circuit? Yeah. Well, I can't speak for everyone, but, uh, you know, throw me millions of dollars. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, just the idea of saying, Hey, you know, I mean, talk a little, maybe I the better question is, what are the other kind of ways that you're augmenting your what, supporting your family? I mean, is it, is it stuff that you could put on hiatus if you guys did have a chance to come to, you know, the Southwest for instance, or the yes. Mount, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I just, I freelance around Richmond, Virginia. I teach music lessons, like mostly bass lessons online. Uh, you know, I've got my band here in Richmond. I, I don't have a day gig. I don't have anything that I, you know what I mean? Absolutely. So, oh, it's great. No, it's great. I mean, I yeah. did, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not delivering sandwiches on a bike or something. You're like it's sort of great. 
it's partially great. Yeah, um, yeah. No, it's cool though. It's it's the kind of thing where, you know, we're talking about putting our album release tour together later this year, and I don't have to think about finding a new job when I get home or anything like that. Can you talk about your own band uh, and how what that group is about? My band is called the Randazzo Big Band. Oh my! Are you and, uh, wait what the Randazzo Big Band? Yeah, yeah. Uh, come on. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, I've always loved big band music because, I mean, it goes back to when I started playing bass in high school because there was a, like, jazz band at school. And I was like, oh, he's playing bass guitar. They're playing Pick Up the Pieces by Average White Band. I could do that. Dude, I'm so, I cannot believe you just brought that up. I've been listening to AWB nonstop the last two weeks. I cannot believe you just brought that up. Picking up the pieces. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know. Because that, that guy, my buddy Jacob that I mentioned earlier, he was playing in jazz band. He, and I was like, I'm going to come see you play, man. I'm going to come heckle your ass. <laughs> so I, I walk in the auditorium and I was like, this is what they're doing? And I was like, I could do that. And the next guy's graduating? Oh, I'm jumping in. So so I started doing that. I started doing the Blues Alley thing. That was another big band. We had like the Levine School of Music. They had a big band. So I was doing all these like kind of big band stuff. And I was, I was into big band music. You know, I mean, listening to uh, Count Basie. Sure. Count Basie, Atomic Basie, uh, April and Paris, those kinds of albums. I was really into Buddy Rich, big band when I was in high school, like Mercy Mercy mm-hmm. or Live. Mm. And, uh, mm. you know, I was just like, oh, man, I don't know. I just sort of took it for granted, I think. And it was just the way. So I'm doing that in high school. I want to go to music school, so I go to college. And, of course, that's what I'm doing in college the whole time. I graduated college, and my buddy Rick Rieger here in Richmond, Virginia, starts the rva big band so i'm playing with that and then uh, you know a little while down the road i played with a couple a couple other big band projects and then there came a time when i was just like man i gotta start i gotta start writing because i studied arranging a little bit in college so i started writing some music for one of the bands i was playing with at the time and that band kind of folded and i just said well it's time to pick up the torch man so thus the randazzo big band was born I, I just, I mean, I need to know, I mean, because I'm thinking back to, like, <clears throat> I mean, the Basie band had, at one time, had a four-piece rhythm section on top of all the horns. I mean, how big is this band? It's a 15-piece band. Holy cow. And so... Sometimes, sometimes 16 or 17, if we have, like, a like a special guest out front or something. But it's 15 at its core. And what kind of events... I mean, big band music for so long, ballroom, it was dance music, really. Yeah. And, and, I mean, even George Duke, when I, rest in peace, when I interviewed him, I mean, he when he saw Duke Ellington's band, it just, it made him want to become a musician, but that was, he was they were performing at like an Air Force base or something. I mean, what <laughs> what is, are you doing banquet halls or doing like, you know. Bars, baby. You're doing bars. You're playing, you, you, dude, you're playing original big band jazz in bars i don't know that i would call it jazz you know oh I mean, t- t- let's talk about the music I, I hate labels i'm sorry well how would you describe the the i mean maybe, maybe it's more like uh uh cut the cake funk music is it funk soul kind of r&b stuff it's kind of r&b you know it's just sort of it's my opportunity to bring that sound and that energy and just pick songs that I love, that I want to arrange or that I have a special idea for. And I've got a bunch of, I've done a bunch of sets over the years where like a theme of a set or a featured artist, but you know, it's just the songs I love, you know, some, we got some Beatles in there. We got some stylistics, 
we got a little Thundercat, a little D'Angelo. Oh, my. You know, oh, just, this uh, is filthy, dude. Are you kidding oh, me? Yeah. It's not. I don't have any jazz charts. Okay. Okay. So, you the, know? yeah. I mean, I wrote jazz charts in, in college for my classes. <laughs> but for my band, no. It's just sort of just, it's music that I know people are going to dig. And it's music that's accessible for a modern audience. Which, you know, if you want to think about the, the swing bands of the day, that's what they were doing. They were playing pop music. They weren't playing antiquated, uh, old, older music from from a different generation, a different time, they're playing the music of the day. So that's that's what I like to think I'm doing with my project, um, you know, playing music from the last 30 or 40 years. Do you have sort of the Zen master quality of like, obviously not everybody's going to get a chance to blow or play a solo on every tune. How, I mean, sometimes like Miles, uh, not every, you know, the sax player wouldn't solo on a certain tune. How, how do you determine who gets to, to uh, stretch out on, on those tunes? Um, well, because I know who's going to be up there at the gigs and I can, and I know that I know their personalities. I know, I know that this guy's going to sound great on this vibe and that guy's going to sound great on that vibe. And these chord changes are in this dude's bag over here. And, um, no, not everybody has a solo. I mean, there's, there's too many of us for that. Um, and that's fine, you know, because it's fun to just read and, and groove and have a good time. And, and that's more what that band's about is just sort of like putting a vibe out in the air. I just want to run through the four L's of my program with you. Um, and the first one is, um, is lineage. And normally I talk about the lineage of your musical, um, uh, sort of, you know, where you come from musically, but, uh, I think you're Italian. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So technically, but you know, I got as much French in me as Italian. Well, I'm just saying, I mean, Malta, I mean, I think it's only 17 miles from the coast of Africa. I mean, they're very, uh, a lot of overlap. Um, and in fact, I remember John Hendricks told me, this great singer from Lambert, Hendricks, and Ross, when I interviewed him, he said, without the Sicilians, there'd be no jazz in America. Uh, oh. they, the, and those guys recognize the genius. Uh, he said, in, I hate to, you know, he used the N-word. He goes, they didn't treat us like, you know, N. And they respected their genius, and they paid them. And in those early jazz clubs in New Orleans, they're the ones that were swinging the. They were they were swinging, and I just wonder about your connection to your homeland, and ultimately how that has crossed over in terms of being open, accessible, and a, a bit fearless as it relates to stepping into musical situations with people who don't look like you. Uh, I don't know, man. I, I don't know if I have a good a- answer, uh, like being in touch with my Italian heritage or whatever. But, you know, my family is from uh, the Gulf Coast. My mom was born in New Orleans. Oh, my uh, so God. Are you with the lot, Crusaders right there? Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I spent a lot of time down there. And I don't know, man. I just, I, I'm pretty simple. I, I like some music that makes me feel good. I was always just into it and drawn to it. Uh, and I think. And uh, it don't matter. It don't matter if you're white, black, or blue. We can make some music. We can find some common ground, universal language. Uh, I yeah, did. No, no. I, I know. I know. Uh, what you're talking about. Let me ask you though. I mean, at 45, father of two, I'm trying to figure out. I mean, I was naive enough to think back in the when I was in college that we were living through some sort of post-racial America. I just. Being that you're that you you were you know from the the uh, sort of that Mason Dixon line, what is it 
that makes it why why is there such an intolerance why are we why does it feel like we've made such little progress in terms of just like seeing that every man's your brother and that it's all one human race i mean i agree with you it i, I mean i've I, I ventured in and 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 connected with so many of my elders that i just feel like every we're all connected as humanity and yet it just seems like over and over again um, at least in this country, we just can't, we get hung up on skin color. And I just wonder why, yeah. why being that you've been around that your whole life, what is the dogma that prevents people from actually opening their heart? I think, yeah, I think old habits die hard, man. I think some people are just brought up, uh, wrong in my opinion. And, uh, you know, I think it's just, I, I think people just can't get past certain things sometimes. Uh, and, and skin color is one of them. And I think there's a lot of those things. And, and honestly, I think as we move on and as time goes on, we start to realize over time what, what we need to get over and, and get past. And, and, and different people do it at different rates. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a shame. It's a shame, especially in America. You know what I mean? It's just it, it's taken some people longer than others to see the way. Well, it's very diplomatically put. I mean, I just to me, I, that was the, it was I'm like, wow, you know. Uh, it was just really nice to see a, um, a mixed race band uh, play, and that you you know you guys were so comfortable together. I just I part of my heart just sort of sinks a little bit because I just wish there was there were more opportunities to do that, and um, and it, it's just like and I just feel like a lot of people um, you know they know better, but they don't really want to change. I guess you have to want to change, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just sort of, I don't know. I, I had white friends and black friends coming up. I was fortunate to go to diverted schools and, you know, I mean, DJ Harrison, Devon Harris, when, when I got to college, it wasn't about white and black. It's just, Hey, here's my dude here. Hey, this guy likes weather report too. Oh, wow. <laughs> so in my age that can appreciate the return to forever. Yeah. Let's go. Let's oh go my dude, I want to see Rondazzo blazing out earth juice uh, with Stanley oh, Clark. Man. No, I mean, so it was Virginia Commonwealth. Is that where you went? Richmond, Virginia, Virginia Commonwealth University, the Rams. The Ram. I mean, dude, this is one of the greatest. So you showed up there and, can you talk about the first time you laid eyes on DJ Harrison? Yes. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Of course I can. Yeah, good. Well, you know, I got to school and, and I immediately was just like, let me see how many people I can meet, how many people I can uh, make music with. And everyone's like, oh, did you meet Javon yet? No. Who's that? Oh, he's he's the best drummer at school for sure. But he's also the best piano player at wow. school. And Jeez. I was like, who is this guy? And it was a couple weeks of being here before I crossed paths. And there's a club called Couscous. Uh, which is no longer there. And there was a band called Fight the Big Bull, which is Matthew E. White's band, who now uh, is over at Space Bomb Records. So at Couscous, every Wednesday, it would either be Fight the Big Bull or Ombach, who was uh, <laughs> Brian Hooten's band, who was a teacher of mine at school. So I was just sort of like, well, this is where I got to go every <laughs> week. Because, I mean, dude, I'm telling you, it was a block from my dorm. Oh, my God, dude. Like, you were marinating in that stuff, man. Dude, it was an amazing time to be in Richmond. It was, and, and especially to just, like, live right there and to just be able to walk right over. It was killer, man. And, um, and I was too young to get in, but Brian, he would get me in. You know, he would make sure I could get in and hear the music. So that was cool. And, um, yeah, I kept hearing, hearing about this cat, Devon. And then he walks in one night, and everyone's like, oh, here's Devon right there. And he had these tight cornrows, and he was looking real fresh. 
And I was like, oh, I don't want to fuck with that guy. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh, man, this dude looks intimidating. And I've heard so much stuff about him. But then, you know, I met the guy and we became really good friends. And he's, he was just the nicest dude. And we realized that we were on the same page. And, man, that first year um, of getting to school, him and I, him and I were sort of, uh, ah, man, we were on like every single recital that was happening at school you know the kids had to do recitals sure and you sort of like gather the other students to plan your recital and there just wasn't that many bass players and drummers and him and i were just playing together a lot and it just sort of made sense so we were just like working come the end of the semester um just playing so much together and we started playing outside of school different bars around town and, uh, yeah, do you ha- tell me you have history. tell me you have some analog cassettes of 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 you playing out 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 on on the town from that time. I mean, you know, because I, I that's what I want to hear that I need to hear that rhythm section grooving, dude. <laughs> well, you know, it was a lot of Devon on bass or on drums and me playing bass. Sure, but uh, right at the end of my first year in college, they were like, or this guy hit me. He was like, "Hey, man, uh, my name is Jason RC, and I went to VCU, and I'm living in New York now, but I'm coming back to." Richmond and, and Devon said I should call you for this gig can you do it and I said yeah and then I saw Devon and I was like what's up with this and he was like oh I'm actually playing keyboards on that band <laughs> and we got a guy named Corey Fonville oh man it's all coming together dude and I was like I was like Farmville <laughs> and he was like no Fonville Fonville so, so that gig with Jason R.C. Uh, at Bogart's here in Richmond, Virginia, sort of went down in history books so for us personally a little bit as the first time we got together. Because it was like, we just got up to rehearse the day of the gig. And as soon as we started playing together, it was like, oh, like there's some shit going on here. Like we we got we got something going on here. And, and the gig was really great. And, and for me personally, just selfishly, it was like all the heads were there. And I was still sort of the new kid on the block. So it was a chance for me to be like, yo, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> like, Call me for your gig. Wait, <laughs> so you that was the first time that you had you had not ever been privy to to DJ playing keys before? No, I knew I knew that he played all the instruments because he was doing beat tapes back then. Right. He was doing these beat tapes out of his studio and, and I was like, Man, this is killer. Like this dude's got some amazing bass lines. That's what I was shedding in my dorm room. My first year of school was just DJ Harrison bass lines, which sort of was the precursor to us, you know, making music together a lot because I just sort of understood where he was coming from, especially from a bass perspective. But no, I knew. I knew his prowess on, on all the different instruments. And he was playing keys at school sometimes. You know, it was just one of those things. Um, the, other, the other L is life, and that means uh, uh, overcoming adversity. And I, I wanted you to talk about a time in your life when you were really up against it and how you overcame it, how it made you a stronger uh, person. You know, I mean, I got to be honest, I certainly haven't dealt with as much adversity as, as a lot of people have overcome it in their lives. But I've, I've been fortunate to be in the right place at the right time um, for a lot, like many different times. Yeah, well, that's just, I mean, life. you're just blessed in that sense, you know. That's definitely, just, yeah. definitely very lucky to... Uh, you know, have supportive family coming up and and ha- and grow up in a nice place and go to a nice school. I had a nice arts department. I mean, as much adversity as I can think was probably just like trying to be a 17-year-old white kid sitting in on jam sessions in D.C. and getting pretty pretty well hazed out of the room. 
Um, but Can yeah. you? I, this is really important. I mean, what? That's that is humble. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Because ultimately, well, I, no, I want to be clear. Yeah. Denny Sywell from Wings got up on the bandstand when he was in the Navy. Lou Donaldson, who's still with us, was was playing. He wanted to play a shuffle. Sywell thought he was all that and couldn't play. And Lou said, "Get the f off the bandstand." But yeah. then then he came back. You know, the thing was this. You got off, you got humbled, you knew what you wor- had to work on, and then you had to have the moxie to show up again, which he did two days later, and he killed it. But was it that yeah. kind of hazing? I mean, that to me, yeah, that's what's that to me is what makes you a stronger person and player, you know? It was HR 57 in D.C., and I sort of, like, had my real book. Or maybe I didn't, or I was just like, no, I'm just going to go. Maybe they'll play a tune right now. And I get up there, and I'm like, I don't know who this piano player was. And I think even if I did, I wouldn't say his name. But I was like, oh, uh, can we play Autumn Leaves? And he was like, it was like I want to play Inner Urge. Oh, and I was like, no. I don't think I know. Joe Inner Henderson Urge. did. And he looked at me and he was like, you don't know Inner Urge? And I was like, no. And he was like, he said to me, he was like, I should take out my gun and shoot you right now. Oh, my God, I like, dude. I was like, uh, you know, just, just I, I was a deer in the headlights, man. I still kind of am thinking about that moment but i was like i don't know what to tell you i don't remember if we played something else or if i got off the stage yeah you're like dude i want to keep my life dude i'll just i'll just walk i'll get off right now i was like it's cool (laughs) yeah but i learned in though i can play that song now i mean it almost feels like does that even do you feel like you were the last of, of our that generation to ever get that experience does that stuff still go on those cut sessions still happen jeez i don't know it's hard to say i mean I I, uh, I played in a house band for a jam session here in Richmond, and that's not the vibe here. But you know, I think I think when I moved to Richmond, that was just not the vibe here in general. It wasn't very. It was very inclusive. It was very welcoming. And coming from that DC scene where I just couldn't fit in, you know what I mean? Interesting. I, obviously. Interesting. I just it was hard for me to fit in as a, like a white kid in high school trying to play upright bass, but. Getting to Richmond is a little more just like, I don't know, there's lots of different music happening and they need a bass player. So it just, I just sort of fit better here. And, um, yeah. No, it's good to know. I mean, Virginia, I I mean, yeah, Virginia is, it's just good to know. Andrew Randazzo is claim, uh, Virginia is more inclusive than DC at this point and probably has. At least at that time. Absolutely. I just, I want, you know, to me as humbling and sometimes deer in the headlights, as it was to me, that was like the best thing that could have ever happened to you was that DC experience. Yeah. Before I let you go, uh, you know, I, I wanted you to just talk about, um, I remember when I, another dear friend of mine is Jim Keltner and he talked about his concept of, of love. And he said that God is love. And he goes, you know, he goes, if you look in your kid's eyes, especially when they're baby and they're really young, you know, that is, that's love, unconditional love looking back at you. And, um, and I just wanted you to talk about how fatherhood is, has changed you. Uh, for me, it, 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 it absolutely made me dream again. It made me actually less responsible. It, it helped me go out and find my voice 12 years in on the Jake Feinberg show. And, mm. you know, my daughters are definitely my heartbeat. And I just wonder how fatherhood has, has changed Andrew Randazzo. Well, uh, you know, 
aside from the practical answers, which I think anyone could sort of fathom, uh, I think from a, like sort of a uh, spiritual standpoint, yeah. it really does feel like a little part of me has been like removed from my body and now exists in this other body. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, it, that manifests itself in lots of different ways. Like I just, if, like from a practical standpoint, I just, I don't have to just worry about myself anymore. It's really much deeper than that. I, I have another person that's just as important as myself in my, in my life, you know, like just from a, from a fundamental level. And also just, just to see, to see a baby, I feel like you sort of realize how, how innocent a thing can be. And you start to realize that everybody that you see walking around the world started out as a little baby, you know, mm-hmm. you start to think about yourself in a different way. And you realize that you were there at one time too. And you start to, th- and I, I personally start to think about my parents in a different light as well. Now that I'm a parent and I start to realize how, how exactly like them I am. And, and it makes me think about how exactly like me, she will be, wow. you know, and, and it's a, it's a really, it's a really heavy responsibility to, uh, to raise a human child. Um, it's a super heavy responsibility and, uh, I'm here for it, man. I'm digging it so far. Yeah. Well, how, how, so it's I, hard I, and it's worth it. How, how many kids you have? I have one kid. And one she, and how old, how old, is, how old is she? She's 15 months right now. Oh my God. She's a, I can't believe that dude. Congratulations, man. Yeah, well, listen, I, all I can say is this, man, that's, you don't have to worry about being perfect. And at the same time, uh, I oftentimes use the analogy that if you're in their presence 10 times and you're only fully present three out of 10, that's you're hitting 300. And if you, if, if your daughter gets th- uh, three out of 10 fully present, Andrew Randazzo's, then she's going to be better off for it. So don't try perfection, have a ball and, uh, Hey man, I I'd love to do a set two with you down the road and and hopefully come check check you out and see you in person. I really, I mean, from Tucson, I went to go visit my brother in Boise, but I I mean, I was there to see my my boys in Mapache, but Butcher Brown, man, that you guys st- blew me away, man. And I I Those are fun shows. Did you come to both or did you just come? To no, I, I heard. I no, it was funny because someone was riffing in the band about how the, the, the night before was very lackluster, but then the one that I was at was on fire. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, the night before was really cold and we were outside. Oh, you were outside. We were outside. Yeah. And, uh, it was cold. So, yeah. So we were cold and the crowd was cold and there, there wasn't that many people there, but it was, it was just, I mean, that I see, I would have loved to have been there too. Uh, the, 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 the show I, I saw was just, I was like these cats. I mean, you're also playing the, my my favorite kind of music. You know, it's like my that's my pocket right there. Yeah, yeah, I love those guys. I love that music, and it's a privilege to uh, to get to work with them and and to be and and to have been in the right place at the right time to to make uh, those guys my peers. Well, don't take anything for granted, my brother. And uh, <laughs> much love to you, and we'll definitely do it again, man. Yeah, Jake, thank you so much, my man. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Yeah, man. Be cool. We'll talk soon. Okay. All right. Be cool. Peace.